Well, hi. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. The kids are all married. It happened. <laughs> it was beautifully sunny on Friday when we were setting things up. And um, it was beautifully sunny on Sunday when we were putting things away. And of course, on the actual day, it rained. <laughs> oh, well, one more thing for this uh, young couple to contend with. They've been very good sports about the whole thing, given they had to cancel the big the big wedding and and settle for a very, very tiny one. But it was lovely. It was lovely. We got the, the tent set up in the backyard in time for the ceremony. We were nice and dry and cozy. It wasn't cold, so it was just lovely. And then we shifted everything over to the gym. Thankfully, we had a, a, a place to carry on the celebrations for a little bit out of the rain. And I have to say that one of my favorite moments of the whole day was in the evening when they were having some dances. There was their first dance. They danced to a George, George Ezra tune. And then Heather and her dad danced to Unforgettable by Nat King Cole and Natalie Cole. And then I wondered, out of all the many, many songs that are favorites in our family, I wondered which song David would choose for us to dance to together. And he chose this one. No one loves you any better than your M-O-W-M-Y And when you start to cry She'll dry each tearful, make you cheerful No matter where you roam Your thoughts always stray Back to that little shack A cozy little nest so far away No one loves you any better than your M-O-W-M-Y As sung by John Lithgow (laughs) So we got to have a lot of fun and laugh our heads off we succeeded, I think, in being perfectly socially distant. A few people were less careful than others, but for the most part, everyone was mindful and we all looked out for one another. And because of technology, they were able to live stream it. So not only was everyone on the wedding list able to see the ceremony in spite of not being there in person, they've been able to share it with so many more people. So it has all worked out just spectacularly. And now we all just get back into our regular routine. And I'm very proud of my new status as an official mother-in-law. I think I'm probably the luckiest one alive. And with that, I give you Chapter 11. Gatekeeper's Key by Krista Wallace. Chapter 11. What a beautiful morning. Pierre couldn't imagine anything going wrong on such a beautiful morning. They were two days out of shale, and Swan Moon was waxing, awakening the new year with it. The clearing in which they were camped was about two furlongs from the road, nestled up against a hillock and surrounded by paper birch trees. She had the last watch of the night, waiting for the sun to hurry up and rise. She found the peace and solitude of the watch restful, allowing her to meditate and reflect. She looked up through the still leaves. A thin veil of early morning cloud deprived her of the joy and wonder of the stars, but no matter, all was calm. She continued her methodical movement around the camp, stepping over Fennel's outflung arm, 
the rhythmic breathing of her friends, the occasional soft snore, Derry rolling over again as if dreaming he was cross. She neither saw nor heard anything that could not be attributed to the activities of the local wildlife. Everything was as it should be. Strange, then, that she should feel so nervously expectant. She paused her steps to stroke Trigg's neck. Her companion nickered, his breath warm and smelling like sweet grass. Still, she could not shake the restlessness. The darkness in the camp was thinning, so she dismissed her nerves in favor of making breakfast. Between short walks around the camp to look and to listen, she put a pot of water and oats on the fire and collected bits and pieces of foodstuffs from each person's saddlebag to create a thick porridge. Some wrinkled but sweet apples, two pears, and some spices that Fennel always carried with him. While the porridge cooked, she rolled up her bedroll, then brushed and braided her hair. She served herself a cupful of the mess and carried it around with her to eat while she continued her watch. The sun was making its presence known, but the freshness of the air still made her shiver. The hot food lifted the chill. Usually her cooking left a lot to be desired, but this actually tasted very good. She toyed with the idea of tossing a handful of dirt into it so the rest of them wouldn't come to expect it from her. The sun's early rays were winning the war over possession of the camp. They shone through the trees onto dewdrops, turning the area into a fairyland of sparkles. It was truly a beautiful morning. Jaskelin was the first to stir, and she wordlessly indicated that he should help himself to breakfast. She took off her armor, slung her weapon belt over her shoulder, and followed a short path with natural steps created by tree roots that led down to the rocky edge of the river. A low waterfall tumbled over the wall of jagged stone a dozen or so paces upstream. Downstream, the water disappeared around the bend of the hillock by the camp. Her boots left shallow imprints in the sand at the edge of the stream. The spring melt had packed it down hard, and it was moist but not muddy. Across the stream, massive willow trees perched precariously on the steep embankment, their branches cascading into the water. More birches and firs beyond the willows came alive with birds and squirrels who loudly expounded on their own enjoyment of the morning. The very air carried the scent of spring and the fresh spray. At the foot of the waterfall was a good-sized waterhole, but only a snow-elf would enjoy such a plunge at this time of year. Instead, Kier found a suitable spot next to a pool about the size of a washtub and crouched down in the frosty fresh spray, placing her belt next to her. She dipped her hands in the pool of fresh clear water and splashed it up on her face, the cool liquid bracing as it trickled down her neck. Her medallion escaped from her tunic and swung down, annoyingly in her way. She drew the chain over her head, folded it around the medallion, and tucked it into her pocket where it was secure enough to not fall out. The rush of water tumbled over the falls and splashed around over the rocks, and she found herself humming as she repeated the action several times. She felt happy. It had been a long time since she'd felt this way. Correction, I've never really felt this way. She took one final splash of water on her face and began to shake the water off her hands. Her eyes were shut and her ears full of the sound of the running water. A force pushed the back of her head, dunking her face first into the frigid water. Her gasp of surprise was her only intake of breath as she toppled forward. Instinct stifled her scream, so she didn't inhale water. Blood freezing in the cold, her frantic attempts to pull herself up were checked by the large hand that gripped her hair and held her under the terrible glacial silence. Panic rose in her throat, her limbs flailed, thrashed, useless, unable to reach or grab or kick or fight or... 
Her right arm was wrenched behind her back. A yank on her hair hauled her up, coughing and spluttering, lungs sucking in precious air. Before a single thought could form in her drenched mind, her other arm was pinned to her side as a hand clamped over her mouth. A muted shring of metal and a splash told her what became of her sword. He was not a small man, and he smelled worse than fennel. He gripped her like a steer about to be branded. She gasped short, sharp breaths. My ribs are about to cave in. Though she kicked furiously, she only made him stumble as he hefted her several hurried paces along the stream. Her heart clunked against her chest. All she saw were the willows on the far bank and the sky. With a grunt of effort, her assailant flung her over the withers of a horse in the lap of the man in the saddle. Mid-moan, she arrested the sound as the point of the rider's knife touched her throat. They obviously wanted her alive, but she dared not call his bluff. Before she had a chance to take one full, deep, glorious breath, they started to move and wind was knocked out of her as the horse's withers dug into her gut. Pain racked her. Kier couldn't tell where they were headed. She blinked water out of her eyes as they splashed through it and heard several other horses join them. She grunted with pain as the horse climbed the grassy bench on the opposite side of the stream. Jaskalin watched Kier descend the path to the river. He'd filled his cup with porridge and stood at the head of the path where he could still see her. The others were in various stages of waking. In the gaps between trees, he saw Kier select a pool and kneel down. "'Now whose turn is it to sneak a look at her while she's bathing?' Fennel called from the fire where he dished up his own breakfast. Jaskalin did not turn his head. I am certain Kier will find comfort in knowing that one of us is looking out for her, bearing in mind that she has been relentlessly pursued since the day we left Wanaka. He told himself that Travile's foreboding words had nothing whatever to do with his decision to stand here. Well, sure, I was just kidding. The elf sounded sheepish. Not a moment later, a thudding sound from the west side of the camp jerked Jaskelin's attention away from his charge. His and Fennel's eyes met, just as Fennel sharply called out, Intruder! The company moved as one, scrambling for weapons. Fennel dropped his cup to snatch his bow, and Jaskelin calmly hastened back toward the camp. No woodland creature Jaskelin was familiar with made a sound like that. A low growl came from behind the hillock. Ogre! Janik yelled as it appeared, crashing into the camp. There was no time to take a breath. It was upon them. The knife had been removed from her throat. Still, there was nothing she could do but gasp for breaths. Bouncing like a piece of game they had hunted down, she pushed herself up with her elbows to relieve the jolting and the rhythmic knocking against her gut. Her captor walloped her in the back. She groaned. Her short breaths exited with moaning gasps, and her body ached more and more with each jarring bump. It was like a hundred kicks to her belly. Finally, Kier had no idea how much time had passed. They reined in and stopped. She choked dusty air in, but soon felt a shove and landed hard on the ground. Moaning, she curled up, lungs heaving. Her ribcage ached from jostling. Her neck throbbed, and her whole body felt stiff. Two men grabbed her and tied her hands behind her back and her feet together. Perversely, she wondered where they thought she would go if they left her untied. She wore no armor, for which she cursed herself, and her sword was at the bottom of a pool, more cursing. She hadn't been wearing a weapon belt, so their quick search included just her trouser legs and boots, which rewarded them with her boot knife, still more cursing. There was nothing for it but to wait and see what was in store for her. She didn't think for a moment that it would be much fun. Shifting, she took a look at the company. 
She'd had a pretty strong suspicion of who her riding companion was, and she celebrated her correct deduction. Eight men heartily congratulated themselves. They were rough-looking men, burly, unshaven, dirty. The lap she had just disembarked was the very lap she had briefly occupied the night they left Wanaka. It and the scarred face belonged to Ronav's man— when she'd stabbed him, only the left side of his mouth had opened. The other had appeared tight and still, as if the muscles were frozen. "'How's the chest wound healing up?' The words escaped her mouth automatically. Wiping sweat off his horse, he stopped mid-stroke. Her heart hammered in her throat as she met his eyes. "'Whoops, was that out loud?' she said. The scarred man's nostrils tightened in visible hatred. The Highness said he wanted you alive, but he didn't say he wanted you undamaged. He hauled her up by the front of her tunic, and she gasped with the pain in her stomach. There's plenty of things I could do to you where you'd still be able to talk after. She cringed away from his touch and the stench of his hot breath. He shook her violently so her teeth knocked together, then thrust her to the ground. She curled up, suppressing a moan. Fear was a useless emotion— Kier pressed it down into her belly. Anger drifted into its place. "'She made it easy for us this time, eh, Con? a barrel-chested fellow said as he wiped sweat off his horse. He might have been the one who'd accosted her at the stream. "'Finally,' said another, "'who'd have thought it would be so hard to pick up a girl?' Con barked at his men to shut it. He did his task with brisk, sharp movements, and Kier stared with horrified fascination at the jagged scar that ran from his jaw to up past his temple. His right eyebrow and the corner of his mouth drooped. Kier surmised that her previous escape had given Con two wounds, the greater of them not from where she had stabbed him. Finished with his mount, he shot a glare at her and went to join his comrades. He removed a small sack from a pocket and took a pinch of some kind of leaf or fungus, rolling it expertly in another small leaf. Soon the pungent, moldy smell of solowid shared the air with the grass and clover. Kier wondered if this was a celebratory smoke or one to get him through. The one who had spoken first looked over at her as she lay on the dusty grass and clover. She stared back at him. He laughed. "'Look at you, all trussed up, a pig ready for slaughter,' he sauntered over to her. "'Quite a bit different from when you escaped from Con before. You were so cocksure of yourself.' She looked at the huge man as level as she could from below. "'I got away, though, didn't I?' Her voice was hoarse. "'And you weren't even there, or else you'd be dead.' His facial features tightened, and he looked ready to kick her. He crouched down next to her. "'You've done it now, haven't you?' he said contemptuously. Going off on your own like that this morning, you played right into our hands. She agreed with him, but didn't say so. He grinned. We didn't even need our secret weapon, but we used it anyway, and now your unsuspecting friends have probably been disemboweled. He left her with that and walked away. Kier's mind teemed with curiosity about this secret weapon, and the fear rebelled against the force that held it at bay. She tried to suppress her imagination. It was nothing her friends couldn't handle. He was bluffing, hoping to undermine her confidence. She didn't know where she was, but deduced that the horses had come out of the river on the west side. There were no trees in sight. An idea struck her, and she idly rubbed her foot in the dry dirt among tufted grass. Almost instantly she was startled by the thud of a knife sticking in the ground at her foot. 
she paled and looked cautiously for its owner. A tall, skinny fellow sidled over. Con says to tell you that if you try anything like that again, he'll cut your foot right off. She nodded. Gotcha. After only a short break to rest and water the horses, they were riding again. She still had to ride with Con, though this time he allowed Kier to sit up, which made breathing easier. But that was where the positive side ended. With no stirrups for her feet, she was steadied only by Con's arm. Worse, her hands were bound behind her back. She held her hands as high up her back as she could to avoid positioning them neatly in his crotch. The sun climbed higher behind them. Gophers ducked into their holes ahead. She cringed against Con's arm around her middle and racked her brain. The sun continued its steady ascent, heedless of what transpired beneath it, and the prisoner grew hot and dusty. She blinked dust out of her eyes and shook insects away from her mouth. The river water had long since evaporated out of her tunic, and now it clung to her back with sweat. Midday was fast approaching, and not a single idea for escape had come to her. Eventually her arms ached and she lowered them as far as she dared, avoiding contact, but the jostling worked against her. "'Good idea,' said her companion, the solowid taking full effect. "'Pleasure me as we ride.' He cupped her breast. "'Not likely,' she squirmed, trying to shrink away from his hand. "'I said,' he clutched her throat in his fingers, "'pleasure me.' She coughed and choked, but an idea finally struck her. Her eyes watered and she gasped for breath through her nose. He rocked against her fist. She punched down into his crotch, and while he cried out and instinctively cringed to protect himself, he also released his grip. She flung her head back and smashed his face, and he screamed in pain and anger. Kier braced herself against an impact and plunged over the side of the horse. With a painful thud, she hit the ground, but scrambled to her feet and ran, stumbling over the uneven grass. Her hands still bound behind her back, keeping her balance was tricky. She heard the cries behind her, the thumping of hooves approaching. Two horses came up alongside her, heading her off, and she tried to dodge. Running feet neared. She ran harder. This wasn't about getting away. It was about not being cowed. Eight to one. As Con's full weight pounded her into the ground, she noted with some dismay that there was still no sign of horses following them from the east. Fear and frustration simmered. Con grabbed her hair in his fist and slammed the side of her face into the ground. It was hard-packed and hurt like hell. Her ear rang, but the grass saved her from a broken jaw. "'Nice try,' he said, roughly rolling her over. Con's ruddy face was so close to hers that a bead of his sweat now trickled down her cheek. The blood that flowed from his nose and mouth did not douse the murder burning in his eyes." Kier lay flat on her back, looking to where eight grown men surrounded her, poised to arrest any attempt at escape. In the schoolyard, eight to one was different. She was a trained fighter, and they weren't. That's why it had taken a gang of eight to bring her down. And in spite of the girls running to tell the teacher, the bitch stayed indoors and made no move to help her. She was on her own. Fine. They'd beat her up pretty good, but they suffered a good deal of damage themselves. She knew they wouldn't kill her, they wouldn't dare, and when it was over they looked as much of a mess as she did. They had to support each other, but she, Kier Halliden, walked home alone. And unlike her, they had to live with the knowledge that they may have won the fight, but they still hadn't defeated her, even at eight to one. Eight to one, she whispered, seething with fury. Congratulations. Con smacked her across the face. "'I'll give you eight to one,' he hollered and began to unbuckle his belt. 
She kicked at him, her face hot with the sun and anger. The tall one who passed on Khan's warning before grabbed Khan by the arm and pulled him back. Khan shook him off with a growling, Get off me, Giles! But Barrel Chest joined in to restrain him. The Highness said not yet, Giles yelled, Khan fighting him. Later, after. The brute finally heard, but didn't break eye contact with his target. All right, then. You don't want to ride with me? Rope! Khan untied her hands as someone tossed him a rope. Kier's mind raced to keep up with Khan's plan. When he yanked her arms over her head and tied them again with the longer rope, she began to get an inkling, and the fear mutated into something that twisted inside her. Kier swallowed hard, meeting his gaze evenly, but said nothing. Khan, what are you doing? Giles's tone held a warning. Khan ignored him. You'd rather run, bitch, than run. He fastened the other end of the rope to his saddle. This was not good. Frantically, Kier grabbed at the rope. If he was going to drag her, she wanted the rope in her hand, not just around her wrists. Khan slung himself onto his mount. She scrabbled to her feet. Surely she could postpone the inevitable. She squinted over the plain back in the direction from which they had come. Please. You two distract it, Derry cried. He plowed off to the right into the birch grove, hoping to get in behind the monster. An arrow zinged across the clearing from Fennel's bow and stuck neatly into the creature's upper arm. With a claw, the beast flicked it away as Janik flung himself straight into the ogre's path. Matching the creature's murderous howl with one of his own, he leveled a chop at the ragged fur covering its legs. Janik had a moment of perverse pleasure as he felt the dwarf-forged steel slice into the ogre's left thigh and lodge into solid bone. A trifle slower but with no less determination, the behemoth swung its knobby club at the dwarf, intent on batting him aside like a cornstalk. The stout warrior felt something clip his left shoulder, then a tremendous blow hammered into his head and the world went black. Fennel's second arrow merely tagged the beast's ear and whizzed off. Dismayed to see Janet go down, the elf tossed his bow aside and dashed in to engage the ogre with his sword. He checked his approach and gasped as the ogre drew a blade and flung it point down at Janet's motionless form. Furious at the beast, Fennel chopped at his outstretched arm. Juskelin positioned himself on the opposite side of the fire pit and calmed himself in preparation to cast a spell. Derry clutched the grip of his bastard sword, feeling the tiny rings on the male gloves bite into his knuckles as he wound through the birches. Through the trees he saw the ogre swing its club straight down at Fennel. The ogre's club pounded into the ground as the elf danced aside. The beast felt the sting of a sword in its right arm. As it turned to face the swordsman, its left leg buckled, the dwarf's blade still protruding from it. Fennel triumphantly stepped in for the kill. With his blade nearly behind him, he began a long circular sweep to sever the ogre's head from its shoulders, but the ogre, grunting with pain and anger, shifted its bulk and swung its club hard to the right. Fennel's eyes widened as the club came around, and he hastily altered his move to parry. He successfully reduced the strength of the attack, and as a result, did not die. It clunked him in the breastplate and sent him head over heels across the camp. His sword flew from his hands and hurtled through the air in an arc that fairly twinkled as it reflected the morning sunlight. It landed in the bushes several paces away. Fennel lay surrounded by underbrush, desperately sucking in air, and wondered if he'd ever breathe again. The ogre pushed itself to its feet, yanking the battle-axe out of its thigh. Fresh blood streamed out of the wound and fell in fat drops on the scrubby ground. The beast peered about for another victim. 
Across the fire, Jaskelin fervently articulated the last words of the chant, summoning the energy from his staff into himself. As he completed the spell, power surged through his arm, pulling him forward to send lightning leaping from his fingers. It blasted the ogre full in the abdomen. The ogre went berserk, enraged by the searing electricity. Casting aside the club, it ignored its burned flesh and charged like a maddened bull, scattering hot coals and burning sticks on its way to the sorcerer. At that moment, Derry finally burst from the trees, emerging right behind the ogre. Fueled by his rage, he struck instantly, severing its left arm at the elbow. The creature turned awkwardly, snarling and grasping with its good arm. Frothy saliva dripped from the yellowed fangs, and Derry smelled the sharp, sweaty tang of fear. He brought his sword down in a precise attack and split the beast from neck to sternum. Gobbets of blood splattered his armor and face as the ogre fell. Across the carcass stood Jaskelin, looking strained, his features taut and pinched. Electric air sizzled around them, raising the hair on their arms. <sighs> Derry panted slowly. Where in hell did that come from? Jaskelin lowered his staff. Suddenly his eyes flashed wide. Kier! He wheeled around and tore off down the path, Derry close on his heels. A moan from behind him halted Derry's pursuit. He hesitated at the top of the path, the momentum of his desire urging him forward. Peering through the trees and willing a glimpse of his friend to appear, his duty as captain did fierce battle with that of physiker adept. The more skilled trade won out. Duty to the wounded was more immediate. He fetched his kit, cursing, yet surprised at himself for forgetting and wishing to ignore that cardinal rule. Fennel was merely winded and soon regained his breath. He had a lump on the back of his head, a result of his spectacular landing, and a few bruises. Janik, however, was in more serious condition. Derry sent Fennel to help Jaskelin. He set to work examining the dwarf's head wound. In spite of himself, his mind was not on his task. Jaskelin plunged his hand into the frigid pool and pulled out Kier's sword. Treville's withered face passed through his mind, and he reluctantly recognized that the party had decreased in number. "'This ogre made no random appearance,' Jaskelin said. He dropped Kier's sword and belt next to the captain. "'They knew we were here.' Fennel was silent. Derry, still kneeling next to Janik's motionless form, finished tying the cloth bandage around the wounded dwarf's head, then wiped his hands. He picked up Kier's sword and slowly wiped it dry, too. I suppose she gave them a golden opportunity by going down there on her own. I was looking out for her, Jaskelin sounded defensive. Of course, Captain reassured him, you could do nothing more when they were equipped with such a distraction. Their camp was two furlongs beyond that hillock, Jaskelin pointed, downwind. Jaskelin found traces of a burned scroll in the fire pit, Fennel put in. He says it was a single-use beast-summoning spell, and I found it where it must have arrived, the abrupt indentations in the dirt. I tracked the group about fifty paces downstream where they left the river on the far bank. I couldn't tell how many, but I'd say eight to ten horses. Derry imagined Kier alone against ten men and his heart lurched. Why did the elf have to give so damn much detail? Fennel was still speaking. I tracked them some distance, they've not made any effort to cover their trail, and they seem to be headed due west. It shouldn't be hard at all to— Thank you, I have a very clear picture, Derry snapped. Janik shifted, groaning, and the captain turned his guilt-ridden attention to the wounded dwarf. Then I've done my job. 
Fennel quietly walked away. Derry scolded himself. The elf was no more to blame than Jeskelin. Captain? Jeskelin said in an undertone. Derry shook his head. I know, I know. But why can he simply not make a brief report and be done with it? Why does it have to be an oration? Captain, Jeskelin crouched next to him and picked up Kier's sword and sheath where Derry had set it. This is hard on all of us. A growl came from the supine dwarf. Why can't I see out of my left eye? A violent tug and Kier ran to keep the rope slack. Con looked back at her and kicked the horse harder. Enraged, she ran faster, peering out through half-closed eyes. The dust stirred up by the horse's hooves pricked at her skin and infiltrated her lungs. She uttered barely a sound, but inwardly she screamed, I can't do it! I can't keep up! Con laughed at her effort and kicked the horse. Kier gripped the rope as it yanked her off her feet. She squeezed her eyes shut against the dust and the impact. She hugged her head as best she could to protect it, but the hard-packed ground was merciless. Thuds reverberated right through her. It wasn't more than a dozen hacking breaths before Kier heard shouting and the horse stopped. More shouts among the men, but Kier cared only that they'd stopped. She heard words like chief, bargaining tools, and reward, and shuddered. But her immediate situation was more pressing. Gasping and coughing, she took inventory of her body. Her sore head wasn't the worst of it. Her arms ached but were still attached. Scrapes stung on her face and her belly where her tunic had ripped. Rope burn on her hands was better than having them sliced right off at the wrists. Bruising on her hips and knees for certain, but a bit of bending told her nothing was broken, maybe a cracked rib. She lay there, panting and sweating and cursing her stupidity. Footsteps. Oh, what now? Giles appeared. You ride with me now? Anything would be an improvement, she muttered. He pointed the knife at her. Watch yourself. I'm no more your friend than he is. I just don't hate you as much. Yet. Giles cut the excess rope, leaving her hands tied in front, and lifted her up onto his horse. She raised her eyes to find Con still glaring at her as if he would just as soon slash her to ribbons here and now. Giles steadied her with one arm. He held her tightly but without hurting her. Already she was glad of the change in companions. After a while, she said, How long a ride is it? We'll be there after dark. After a pause, he said not unpleasantly, So, what's your name? You didn't bring me along to make friends. I'll speak to your chief, if I feel like it. Giles chuckled. Ho, <laughs> you'll speak to him all right. Kier said not a word, but held her head high. She'd regained control for now. A burning curiosity gnawed at her. Why'd you make Khan stop dragging me? He grunted. The Highness would prefer to interview a live subject than a dead one. Humph. <laughs> there was still time. Derry would never leave her to an unknown fate. Soon, very soon now, she would see dust billowing in the east. She and her captors had travelled almost due west the entire day, concentrating more on speed than throwing pursuers off their path. Fennel was an expert tracker, and surely Jeskelin knew some sort of spell that could— Jeskelin, she silenced a gasp of dismay. He won't ride a horse. He walked quickly, but never as quickly as these men had been riding all day. A twinge of doubt crept up her neck. For the first time today it crossed her mind that perhaps Ronav planned to be finished with her before her friends caught up with them. How could they possibly catch up? The precariousness of her situation sank in. 
Ahead, a dark line of conifers edged the distant horizon as far as she could see in either direction. The foothills of the Ptarmigan Mountains. She swallowed hard and craned her neck to see behind them, but all she could glimpse beyond the horsemen was wide open plain. Empty plain. Don't bother watching out for your precious friends, my girl, her companion said, guessing her purpose. We left them plenty to keep them busy, so they'll not even be thinking about coming after you, if they aren't dead, that is. Kier tried to sound casual. Oh yeah, what's this secret weapon I heard about? An ogre. Fighting the fear back down into submission, she said, Only one? Even if they survive, by the time they find which way we've gone, you'll be dead, or worse, still alive. Kier held her head up higher. I understand you're pretty new to the group, Giles said casually. How can you be sure you're worth the effort it'll take them to find you? Of course I am, she scoffed. But the bastard's words struck a nerve. Was he right? What were Valraker's instructions to Derry? Perhaps the mission was more important than a new recruit whose usefulness was untried. Finally, she was forced to concede that Derry and the others may never find her. She was on her own. Fine. That's it for Chapter 11. Tune in next week to find out what happens to our friends who have now been separated. Continue. Be kind, be calm, be safe, and take care of each other. Thank you so much to my family, Matt. David and Heather, the newlyweds, Maggie, of course David and Sharon, thanks to the original six, and thanks so very much to you for listening. Bye for now. Hey, hi, it's just me. I just wondered if I could borrow some of that ant powder if you have any left, or could let me know what it is so I can get some. I think I've discovered... Uh, where these bloody creatures, the crippers, are getting into my house, so I want to kill them, slave them, ha ha, death, death to them all, bye. Go be fantastic.